Paul's epistle to the Colossians in chapter 3. We will read together this morning verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. So Colossians 3, 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. We have been in a series of sermons in the book of Colossians. We are breaking into a section in which Paul is expounding what it means to submit to the Lordship of Christ in the context of different relationships, uh, particularly in the context of households. So last week we considered Paul's instructions to families, uh, husbands and wives and parents and children. It was very common in those days for uh, households to have bond servants, and some in the household would be the masters of those bond servants, and that's the reason for this instruction that Paul gives in the context of addressing Christian households, and he gives particular instructions to bond servants and to masters, and it's those instructions we want to consider this morning in our regular exposition of the book of Colossians. So please follow along as I read Colossians 3, verse 22, through chapter 4, verse 1. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. But the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Let's pray once more together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that once again you would open up the word to us, that you would please come and assist us by your Holy Spirit, that he himself would be our teacher, and that he would lead us into all truth. Open up even this passage to us, show it how it can inform our lives, uh, lived in fellowship and in submission to you. Strengthen us by your word this morning, convict us by it, help us by it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I imagine that many of you here are familiar with, or at least have heard of, the Protestant Reformation. And if you're familiar with the Protestant Reformation, you're surely familiar with the figure of Martin Luther. And if you're familiar with Martin Luther, you're probably at least aware of the one doctrine in particular he expounded that was at the heart of the Reformation. And that is, of course, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. This doctrine teaches that the only way to be made right before a holy God, the only way to have one's sins forgiven and to be counted righteous is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. This was Martin Luther's big, we call it his Reformation breakthrough, and it changed everything. But the Reformation also set in motion all kinds of new discoveries in the Bible, or we could say recoveries of important biblical doctrines that once they were recovered, began to revolutionize European society as the Reformation began to expand and extend its reach further and further. One key Reformation doctrine uh, that certainly doesn't get as much press as justification by faith alone, but was nonetheless earth-shattering when it was recovered, was the Protestant doctrine of vocation and the sacredness of work. 
What God enabled Luther and others to grasp at the time of the Reformation was that what was commonly held to be the traditional divide between sacred and secular in the arena of vocation was not really a scriptural divide. The belief that most ordinary work was basically secular and was just a necessary part of life but had no real sacred value as such. And the corollary idea that clerical callings or ministry callings were really the only callings that had special worth in God's eyes. This idea was demolished by Reformation teaching. What Martin Luther and others began to discover is that all of our work, even the most seemingly mundane and unexciting of tasks, ought nonetheless to be rendered to God as acts of worship. And that God actually dignified and elevated the importance of our ordinary earthly vocations by calling us to perform them in service to the Lord. What Luther in essence did was he shattered the traditional sacred-secular divide when it comes to vocation. He dignified all work as in some sense sacred, all work as worship, all work as being rendered in service to the Lord. And in this, we of course believe that Luther was surely right. Well, one of the passages that surely informed Luther's thinking on this topic is the passage before us this morning in Colossians 3.22 through 4.1. Paul speaks of bondservants and masters, and in so doing, as he addresses this particular situation in the Colossian context, he provides us with important perspectives regarding work. Now, I'll just give a quick word about the context. It might be troublesome as 21st century Americans to come to a passage and to see a Christian apostle, a Christian teacher addressing bond servants or slaves, however it's variously translated, and then masters, and not uh, making a plug here for getting rid of this institution of slavery that would have been present in uh, Roman society in those days. There's a couple things I'd have to share contextually that I think help us understand why Paul doesn't do that here, okay? First of all, the sort of slave system in the Roman Empire in those days it's very different from how we might think about it in our own context 150, 200 years ago here in America. You still had the component where the master had some ownership over the slaves, but it was very common for people to subject themselves to slavery, to enlist themselves in slavery, maybe to pay off a debt, maybe to receive some benefits from someone else uh, for health care or lodging and food or things like that. That wasn't uncommon at all. In fact, you had many in uh, what we would consider highly skilled professions now that actually served as bond servants in particular homes. It was very common for doctors to enlist themselves as bond servants, to provide medical care in exchange for certain benefits from the master. So very often, the arrangement of bond servants and masters wouldn't look tremendously different from how some of our jobs look in terms of our responsibility to our employers. But that said, nonetheless, there were certainly many ways in which slavery was carried on uh, that was egregious and sinful. Uh, tribes might have been conquered and then brought into slavery to be owned by a superior class. People would be forced into servitude for different reasons, uh, uh, various uh, purposes. Uh, now, what the New Testament does, what's interesting is, uh, Paul and the other New Testament writers don't necessarily provide in every setting sort of a manifesto for how we will undo this system that is contrary to so many Christian values. Rather, very often the apostles are concerned simply with how to help those who find themselves in the system uh, to live faithfully and how they can receive comfort and help and instruction even as they are in this system that doesn't look to change anytime soon. 
But historically speaking, it is the principles of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, that the Lord did use to bring about an end in so many contexts to the institution of slavery. It was kind of an undoing from within, a sort of covert uh, way of removing this institution of slavery. And then even as slavery came to expression here in our own context, in America, or we might think of in the UK, it was ultimately a Christian movement built on Christian principles that brought about the end of that terrible institution. So I say that by way of context just so that does not distract you as we consider Paul's instructions regarding bond servants and masters in the Christian household. I want us to consider this passage under two main headings. Very simply, let's consider Paul's instructions to bond servants, and then secondly, Paul's instructions to masters. Instructions to bond servants, instructions to masters, and then we'll consider some points of application. First of all, instructions to bond servants. Look with me again at verse 22, on down through verse 25. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. So in essence, we have two imperatives that are directed to bondservants in this passage. We see this in the original language. You can see it also in the English. The first imperative is that these bondservants obey their earthly masters. That's the first call here. Bondservants, you obey those who are your earthly masters. And then the second is in verse 23. Bondservants are instructed to work heartily. Let's consider each of those two imperatives. These are the instructions given to bondservants. First of all, they're told to obey in everything their earthly masters. Not by way of eye service, verse 22, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So the simple command given to bondservants is that they obey their earthly masters. That verb obey that we see in English, it's the same verb that Paul uses just a couple of verses earlier when he calls children to obey in everything their parents. But note it's a different verb from the one translated submit in verse 18 to, re, to, to uh, express a wife's submission to her husband. The verb translated obey here in our text, Colossians 3.22, carries with it the idea of executing an order that's been given or fulfilling a task or duty or command that's been given by an authority figure. That's the basic meaning of that verb obey. And this kind of response was enjoined upon bondservants to the directives of their earthly masters by the Apostle Paul. Now at this point, I want to highlight a subtlety in the original language that is not reflected in most English translations. So Paul refers to obedience to earthly masters in verse 22. Now here the Greek word translated master is the same word used later on in the text that we translate Lord to describe Jesus himself. Uh, so the word kurios or kurion is used to describe our earthly kurion. It's also used to describe our Lord, our master. So there's a word play that Paul is working with here. What he wants us to see is that we do have perhaps some of us earthly masters, but the way in which we respond to our earthly masters might be a reflection of what we think of our heavenly master. So he says, obey in everything your earthly master or Lord. 
And in so doing, you're to recognize you're submitting to your heavenly Lord or Master, your superior Lord or Master. He's saying this Master who ranks above that earthly Master, He has put that Master over you. And His will is that you would respond in obedience to the earthly Master. Furthermore, Christ's Lordship itself is expressed in part through the earthly Masters He places over us. I think it's actually maybe the dominant idea in this passage, the idea that we obey our earthly masters. These Colossian bondservants obey their earthly masters as a way of obeying their heavenly master who is over all. So Paul says, obey in everything your earthly masters. And then he qualifies this obedience in two ways. First, Paul gives a negative qualification and then a positive qualification. First, bondservants are to obey their masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Obey not by way of eye service as people pleasers. Now, I'm saying an unusual amount about the Greek of this passage, but there's just some really good insights in here that I think we need to appreciate. There's another word play here, actually. Uh, so, the word for a bondservant is doulos, bondservant or slave. Actually, some of you might have delivered a baby with the assistance of a doula. Okay, so that's the feminine Greek word for a female slave. Now, hopefully, you didn't treat your doula in that way as a female slave. Uh, but that's where the word originates, okay? So doulos means slave or bondservant. When, when Paul speaks of these bondservants obeying their masters not by way of eye service, the Greek word for eye service is ophthalmo doulios. Ophthalmo, what's that? An ophthalmologist, right? Eyes. And service, doulos, is again servant or bondservant. So he says, bondservant, you're to obey your earthly masters not as like just those who are servants when the eyes are on them. Not just a servant to your master's direct supervision, but rather you are to respect that relationship at all times. You're not to do it merely by way of eye service, uh, not as people pleasers. Such people are not really obeying and working out of sincerity of heart. Rather, Paul says, they're people pleasers. They're not motivated to serve the Lord from the heart. They're simply doing this for the eyes of their earthly masters. But Paul wants Christian bondservants to behave differently because their highest aim is not to be mere people pleasers who render eye service. They're not to simply work to be seen or to work for the approval of others. And they certainly are not to rob those who are over them by creating a false illusion that work is being done when really it's not being done and they're just slacking off. No, rather they should obey not by way of eye service, not as mere people pleasers. But then there's this positive qualification placed on this first imperative to obey. They're to obey not by way of eye service, verse 22, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Sincerity of heart, or it can be translated singleness of heart. I think the simple point is this is an obedience that is directed from the heart. It's not motivated externally by the eyes of the master being upon me. It's motivated internally from the heart out of fear of the Lord. Sincere motives. No hidden agendas. No ulterior motives. This is sincere obedience that comes from the heart. The Christian bondservant is think, I'm doing this. I'm working. I'm obeying my master. The person the Lord has set over me purely and sincerely from a heart that fears the Lord. And with an awareness that I am ultimately answerable to Him, I am exercising my obedience at all times aware that I do so in the sight of God, even if it may not be in the sight of men. 
Therefore, I do not obey by way of eye service or in order to please my earthly master. Ultimately, I obey chiefly out of the fear of the Lord. That is the ultimate motivation for this obedience. It is that Christ's eye is on me. And I work ultimately for Him. So essentially what Paul is doing here is he's reimagining the situation for Christian bondservants. He's saying to them, if you're out in the field or you're setting the table or you're carrying out your master's business in the marketplace, do it as if you're doing it in direct service to Christ himself. Because ultimately, that's what's happening. All our work is carried on, that we have superiors, supervisors, and in this case, masters. All of our work is to be carried on in service to the Lord. And these bondservants were to know Christ had placed that master over them. And his will for them is that they obey that master, not ultimately to please the earthly master, but to please their heavenly master. This is the first imperative. The bondservants are to obey their earthly masters. Now consider with me the second imperative that Paul gives to bondservants in verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Then look on in verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. The imperative given, the second imperative, is that bondservants work and that they work heartily, and that they're to do so ultimately because the Lord is their master. Christian bondservants in Colossae, you're doing this ultimately for Christ. In other words, the quality of our work should correspond ultimately to the quality of the one for whom the work is performed. Yes, we do work for our earthly masters, but remember, they are simply placed there by the Lord Himself. I'm to look through the earthly master, as it were, to see the Lord Jesus, my heavenly master, and I'm to do the work as unto Him. And this is to determine the quality and the character of the work that is rendered. Paul then offers this encouragement. As he does so, he gives two reminders. Work heartily, he says, verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. In other words, remember, as you work heartily, you're to remember, you're to be always mindful that it's really the Lord who you are serving ultimately. Whatever might be true of that master over you, it's the Lord who placed him there. And he will be the one who ultimately rewards you. There's a promised inheritance. That ultimately you do this, I mean, there might be benefits in terms of wages that you get from your master in an earthly sense, but the inheritance ultimately comes from the Lord himself, the one for whom you render your service. Of course, if you were a bondservant, you were unlikely to be the recipient of any kind of inheritance, but to those who work for Christ, he has an inheritance. He has a reward in store for all those who work for him and who are his bondservants. After all, he is the one who said in the parable of the talents, which we considered a few months ago, which our brother David Ray also uh, addressed us upon this past Saturday at the men's breakfast, the Lord is the one who said to his servants, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Jesus always rewards his servants. Christ the Lord, the heavenly master, he gives an inheritance to those enlisted in his service. And that's the inheritance we work for. 
the approval of the Lord and the reward that He promises to His servants. So Paul is telling these bondservants, you don't do it ultimately for your master or even for the wages he offers you or, or whatever benefits he might give you. You do it ultimately for the Lord. You work heartily for him and not for men, knowing that one day he'll reward you if your work is done faithfully, diligently, heartily as unto his service. But then there is, again, a negative qualification given or a negative uh, reminder that Paul gives, and that is that the wrongdoer will be punished. It was probably not uncommon for bondservants to try to cheat their masters. And so Paul issues a sober warning. He says in verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. If as a bondservant you're just doing this for eye service, or you're cheating your master, or you're stealing from him, or you fail to obey him in all things, if you fail to work heartily as unto the Lord, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. This is simply the negative corollary of what Paul has just said. If you're doing your work for eye service as people pleasers, know that the Lord sees. The master's eyes may not be on you, but the Lord's eyes are always on you. And he will render to each one according to his deeds, and there's no partiality with him. In other words, you cannot plead, well, well I was just a lowly bondservant, so there's no big deal, right? My, my work was so insignificant. And so why should the Lord care uh, whether or not I cheated my master or cheated in my affairs with my employer. No, all work is dignified in God's eyes because all work is ultimately rendered unto Him according to His providence. Therefore, it matters supremely to Him how we work, even in the small things, and there is no partiality. And so Paul candidly wants bondservants to be motivated in part by the reality that meager, dishonest, and half-hearted service will be punished. And the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Well, these are Paul's instructions to bond servants, that they obey their earthly masters in the fear of the Lord, and that they work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now consider secondly, and far more briefly, Paul's instructions to masters. But Paul doesn't leave the masters without a word. He then turns to them, as it were, masters who might have been among the church body there, and he gives them specific instructions in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So what about those who have bondservants working under them? Maybe there might have been some rich member in the church and had lots of bondservants that served in the house and served in various affairs in his estate and things like that. How was he to treat those who were under him? What is to characterize the way in which masters exercise their stewardship and authority over those below them. Here Paul gives just one main imperative. In English, it is treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Treat them in a certain way. could be translated, make this the reality. See to it that this is accomplished, that your bondservants are treated justly and fairly. Your authority over them, masters, is never to be used as grounds to mistreat them, to take advantage of them, or to abuse them. Rather, you are to treat them with justice and fairness at all times. And it's interesting to know this directive from Paul uh, may have been instructing masters uh, not to take what might have been considered in those days uh, legitimate legal rights with their bondservants. It was permissible to beat your bondservants at times within an inch of their life. 
Paul said, don't you do that. Don't mistreat your bondservants. You Christian masters treat them justly and fairly. Your authority over them cannot be used as grounds for heavy-handedness and abuse. And then Paul gives this sober reminder. He says, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly knowing, knowing. You are to remember, masters, those in authority over others. You are to be ever mindful that you have a master in heaven and you will answer to him. So any authority, masters, that you have, any stewardship that you have is only delegated from him who is Lord over all. And therefore, you are to exercise that authority and stewardship in the sober recognition that you do so at all times under his oversight. And the earthly masters that are over people in this world, they will answer to their ultimate supervisor. They will have a meeting with the general manager. Uh, they will meet with the VP or the CEO, whatever term works for you. Uh, they will give an account for how they exercise their authority in this life. Well, now I'd like to transition to application. Those are Paul's instructions to bondservants and his instructions to masters. Well, let me ask, what would a contemporary application of this passage look like in our context today? It may seem to us there's no institution of masters and bondservants or masters and slaves in our context. It may then seem like Paul's instructions are now moot and irrelevant based on an outdated slave system that is simply no longer part of our reality in our world today, at least here in our country. But friends, I think this text is very relevant to us because ultimately the major principles of this passage don't depend on a slave-master relationship. They don't depend on the existence of a slave-master system. They depend really on three things. Number one, the existence of some kind of authority over others, however that's arranged. But number two, the performance of work, which probably all, certainly most of us are going to be engaged in on a week-to-week -week basis. And number three, the lordship of Christ. The existence of authority over others, the performance of work and duties and responsibilities and the lordship of Christ. Therefore, I think it would be altogether appropriate to apply this passage to ourselves in our individual jobs and vocations insofar as we work under the oversight of people placing legitimate authority over us. It also may apply to us insofar as we ourselves exercise authority over others and perhaps have people working under our legitimate authority. You might think of employees or staff or students or something like that who are answerable to us. In fact, I think this passage can apply literally to any Christian who performs any work of any kind. There's principles here for us to see as we engage in our work under the Lordship of Christ. I'll say again, of course, there is at least one very obvious difference that should be acknowledged. Bond servants were in a legally binding relationship with their masters. In fact, there was a real ownership component between masters and bond servants. That's obviously not the relationship between a boss and an employee, and yet many of the principles of this passage would still be in play in the relationship between a boss and an employee. Now, just as the work of a Christian bond servant should be rendered as unto the Lord, so should all our work in our various jobs and vocations be rendered as unto the Lord. And so the vast majority of us sitting here are going to be engaged in some kind of work day in and day out. Perhaps you work for a company, or perhaps you work for yourself, perhaps you're a stay-at-home parent, but you nonetheless work in the home environment. Perhaps you're a student working on your education. Most of us 
work. This passage is relevant to all of us who are engaged in any kind of work. So what points of application can we draw? I have three, and then we'll conclude and transition uh, to our observance of the Lord's table. Number one, first point of application. In our various jobs and vocations, we should recognize that we work ultimately for the approval of the Lord. In our various jobs and vocations, we should recognize that we as Christians work ultimately for the approval of the Lord. So whether you work as a street sweeper, a plumber, an electrician, a teacher, a doctor, an accountant, an attorney, a real estate agent, whatever you do, this passage reveals to us that all our work is to be done in service to Christ. That is to say, the Lord cares intimately about how our work is performed. You may think the work you're doing is unimportant. You may think it's of little consequence to the people around you, let alone yourself. You may think my work doesn't really serve the kingdom of God in any direct way. You see no reason why the Lord should have any special interest in what you're doing. But this passage reveals He cares even about how bondservants set the table or sweep the porch. How much more the way you, brother, sister, serve your customers or treat your clients or provide health care to your patients. How much more the manner in which you carry out the assignments of your teacher or your manager or your VP. Colossians 3, 22 through 25 reveals that all of our work is to be done under the Lordship of Christ. We are to carry out our work as if the Lord Himself were our supervisor, our inspector, and our manager. Because in fact, brother, sister, He is. The Lord is our supervisor. He is our ultimate master, our ultimate Lord. We do all in service to Christ. And He cares, brother, sister, how you carry out your work. Whether in the world's eyes it seems important or unimportant, whether it is directly connected in an obvious way to the concerns of the church and the kingdom of God or not, whether it's in the home or in the marketplace, Jesus cares about our work. And He is Lord, wants it to be performed heartily as unto Him. And I'll just ask, friends, if our work is ultimately performed not primarily for the pleasure of our earthly masters, but ultimately for our heavenly master. What ought to be the quality of our work? Christians should be known as those who are the best of employees, as those who work diligently and faithfully, as those who see tasks through to completion. Secular employers should mark, look at how they do their jobs with such diligence and excellence. It's like they don't even need a supervisor. But but of course, it's not that we don't have a supervisor. It's that we have such a supervisor. In in other words, there's a motivating principle for Christian workers that isn't present for non-Christians. For for non-Christians, it may be simply the approval of man. It may be eye service as people, but for the Christian, we're aware at all times, we're under the watchful gaze of our Lord, and we so love Him and are devoted to Him, and it's been revealed that our work, even mundane and menial tasks, can be carried on as acts of worship to Him. Well, then how much more am I going to give attention to the work and to the tasks and the responsibilities that are entrusted to me? One more quick note here before leaving this first point of application. This text also teaches us uh, that as all of our work is to be done in service to the Lord, 
All of our work, therefore, has value to the Lord. And this perspective, brother, sister, should have the effect of dignifying all of our work and elevating its importance in our eyes and in the eyes of one another. It is all done for the pleasure of Christ. My work, however mundane it may seem, becomes an act of worship to the Lord, an act of submission and service to His Lordship. My friend, He sees your work as important and valuable so much that He gives instructions on how to carry it out in a way that is pleasing to Him. So much so that He promises you an inheritance. I so appreciated uh, our brother David Ray in his uh, men's breakfast talk yesterday uh, in the parable of the talents highlighted that for the servant who was given five talents who brought a return of five talents to his master and then the servant who was given two talents and brought a return of two talents to his master even though there was a disparity in terms of what was entrusted to them they both received the exact same reward. The exact same language is repeated for both servants. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that I have prepared for you. The idea is, uh, though there might be a disparity in terms of our respective stewardships, at least the way we might view them, all work, if rendered in service to Christ, is beautiful and wonderful to Him. All work is valuable in His eyes. All the work that we might render to the Lord is to be seen as a precious act of worship in His sight. And so I encourage you, brother and sister, the Lord sees your work as important and valuable, so much so that He gives you instructions on how to do it as unto Him. As one preacher eloquently put it, if a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as Michelangelo painted, or Beethoven composed music, or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Amen. Second point of application. Second point of application. In our relationships with those in legitimate authority over us, we ought to give to them the proper respect and obedience they are due. I'll say that again. In our relationships with those in legitimate authority over us, we ought to give to them the proper respect and obedience they are due. And again, I'd reason here from the lesser to the greater. If Paul expects even bondservants to obey their masters, surely he would expect us in our relationships with those in legitimate authority over us, whether they be bosses, supervisors, teachers, etc., to show the proper respect and compliance that they are due. Friends, simply put, we ought to respect our superiors. We must never be those who simply render eye service as people pleasers. We should work heartily, with all sincerity, showing proper honor and deference to those with authority over us, knowing that we work ultimately for the Lord and that He has placed them over us. So how does your regard for authority speak to your Christian witness? How do your superiors view you? And what have they gleaned about the implications of your Christian faith for your job? How would they assess your work? It's not hard to test this out. You might just think, what would your boss think if he or she were sitting here in this service and realize this is the kind of message that is being preached to you in this church? Would they be surprised? Would they think, you know, I would have never guessed that Jim to this kind of attitude toward his work, to get him to do anything is such a hassle. I always have to stay on top of Jim, got to keep riding him. 
Jane, you know, she can never be relied upon. I would never have guessed that she viewed her work in this way based on what I have seen from her at the office. Or, 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 would your boss think if he were here, she were here, would they say, ah, now I see what makes Jim tick. Now I see why Jane is such a spectacular employee. He thinks, she thinks, that the work they do is actually an act of worship to their God. Well, surely this explains the exceptional quality of their work. This explains their extraordinary work ethic and commitment to excellence. Brothers and sisters, the fact that a man or woman is a Christian should be the most important thing on their resume. If there were any doubt that this individual would be hardworking, honest, a person of integrity, kind and generous toward others, eager to pursue excellence in their work, all one should need to know is that this person professes to follow Jesus as Lord. That should be a universal credit to any employee to know if, this, if I have a Christian on my hands, well, there's just a certain quality. There's a certain internal motivation that's there. I can't really explain it, but they're the best kind of people to work with. My father worked uh, middle management, blue-collar work, and he would always tell me my favorite guys to hire. He's hired hundreds and hundreds of people over the years. And he said, my favorite guys to hire are uh, military guys. You know, there's just, there's just such a commitment to excellence by these military guys. If I see military is on the resume, I don't ask any more questions. I know I'm going to love this guy. I'm going to love this woman. Well, in a similar fashion, although in a far more profound fashion, if I know that before me is a Christian, that should be a universal indicator. Oh, there's going to be a certain excellence about this person's work. Uh, work isn't just, you know, a clock-in, clock-out thing for them. It's not just to cash a paycheck. There's something more to how they view their vocations, their calling, their work. Uh, again, I so appreciated Brother David's talk yesterday, the illustrations that he gave. I don't want to embarrass our brother, so I won't say his name, though David gave it yesterday. Uh, I'll just say a certain cardiologist in this church uh, was commended in the most healthy fashion. Uh, David was out talking to somebody, and they had our brother as a cardiologist and spoke to the excellence of his work. Well, that's just as it should be. Oh, Dr. Sutton, he's the best. Oh, he's wonderful. He's so good at what he does, the attention he gives to his patients. That's just as it should be. And then David gave a wonderful illustration when he was the principal uh, at a school, principal, right, at a uh, public school in uh, Georgia, of um, uh, those who were the custodians. There were three individuals in particular. Uh, and just the excellence and the quality of their work and the pride they took in their work as Christians. Uh, and, and they went above and beyond at all times. David told the story of how he only required one coat of wax to be spread out on the main hall, and they would always spread out seven. And uh, they're up early, last ones to leave, all these kinds of things. And when he spoke with them, their testimony was, I'm a Christian, I do this in service to the Lord. Well, that's as it ought to be. That ought to bring such a quality and a attractiveness and potency and power to our work in our various loca uh, vocations. The Christian attitude toward work should stand out to those who are above us. It should form a distinctive part of our witness. But again, before leaving this point to the last point of application, just a word to those of us here who struggle with the authority figures that are above us. Nothing I've said up to this point is to say it's inappropriate or wrong to uh, leave from one authority figure to relocate or to take a different job or something like that. 
It's not to say if some sort of crime or offense is committed, that can't be reported. I'm not saying anything like that. But I am aware that there are many of us here who perhaps are in very difficult relationships with those who are in authority over us. You could imagine some perhaps in the Colossian church. You have a Christian believing bondservant, but their master is not a believer. Well, the injunction given to the servant was that he was to obey his earthly master. wasn't conditioned on the master treating him justly and fairly. And I'm just aware there are many of you here who are in relationships and in situations in your work settings where you're not treated with anything approximating justice and fairness. Let me encourage you with this word that I think we can see here in our passage. No, brother, sister, you have that boss, that supervisor, that GM, that teacher, whoever it may be. Uh, though you may struggle being under their authority, the comfort we find in this passage is the teaching that all those who are in authority over us are there by the providence of God. And as they are appointed over us by the providence of God who has our good always at heart, we can trust His good plans for us and the authority figures He places over us in our lives, even those who are difficult. My friend, He didn't make a mistake when He placed that man or woman over you. There are no accidents with God. Your teacher, your manager, your direct report, whoever it is, is there by the Lord's appointment. He has placed that individual there above you and he has not left you without a word as to how he wishes for you to relate to that person above you. It may be difficult and at times severely challenging, but the Lord sees, brother, the Lord sees, sister, and the Lord knows and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly for your faithful labors. Third and final point of application. Third point of application. For those of us who have legitimate authority over others, we ought to exercise that authority justly and fairly as under the Lordship of Christ. And I'll say it again. For those of us who have legitimate authority over others, we ought to exercise that authority justly and fairly as under the Lordship of Christ. Okay, so there are many in this church who have been called to exercise authority over others by virtue of our jobs and callings. But just a kind of a quick calculation, the members of this church exercise authority and oversight over literally thousands of people in our community. Brothers and sisters, you're sitting among, you add up all the people, uh, we have supervisory roles over, direct report roles over, management roles over, literally thousands of people will be influenced by how you do your work in our community. This text challenges us to evaluate how we're using that authority. Okay, so let me just say something that's not very popular in our day, um, but authority is actually a really great thing. It's a gift from God. I was thinking of this the other day as I was driving. Uh, just the hundreds and hundreds of invisible ways my life benefits from authority every day. Here we got roads that are well managed, we got uh, stores that are stocked well because authority has been exercised in certain ways. I have a retirement fund that's being looked after by someone with some kind of authority and stewardship. There's just all kinds of ways we are benefited by authority figures in our day-to-day -day lives. You have doctors that you might go see. There were authorities over them to ensure that the work they provide you is quality work, right? All kinds of ways we benefit from authority. Authority can be a great thing. But of course, it all depends on how you use it. When used well, it is a gift not only to the one who exercises authority, but also to those who come under it. 
So this is why when you were a kid, everyone wanted to go over to uh, the best parent's house. The parents who were the best, everyone wanted to be over there. This is why everybody wants the best teacher, right? They want the best job. Uh, they want to have the best people over them because authority, when exercised well, is a good gift. Listen to just these four verses from 2 Samuel 23, 1 through 4. Statement on authority. Now these are the last words of David. Whoa. Last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, David says. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. What has he said? When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. What a beautiful picture of the gift that authority can be when exercised justly, when one rules well, when one rules justly, and how terrible and harmful it can be when it's abused and misused. Authority can be a great gift, and it can be a great curse. All depends on how it's used. Well, what about our text in Colossians 4.1? What can we learn here about the proper exercise of authority? Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. What responsibility did this passage enjoin on those of us who have individuals underneath our authority? It is to treat those under our authority fairly and justly, to have their good at heart, and to recognize that any authority we possess is exercised under the greater authority of the Lord Himself and that we will answer to Him. All those who are entrusted with any authority, any stewardship, we will answer to the one who has authority and stewardship over all. Maybe you've heard that famous statement from Abraham Kuyper. Uh, There's not a square inch of this universe over which Jesus does not say, mine. My friend, any authority you have, it's a temporary lease. It's an entrusted stewardship. And we will answer to the master and how we use our authority. So bosses here, managers, executives, supervisors, teachers, principals, directors, whatever your title, this passage requires you to treat those underneath you with justice and fairness and equality. It requires you to treat people with dignity and respect. You may not be domineering or heavy-handed with your staff or employees. You should always uphold their dignity and their worth at all times. You should pay them according to their value. You ought not to be severe with them. You should not overburden them. You must not drive them into the ground. You are rather to be considerate of them and to treat them with all justice and fairness. And in all your oversight of others, you must be always mindful. The Lord has placed me in this position of authority, and I ought to exercise it in such a way as to honor and please Him. All my judgments, all my decisions, my rulings, they're all carried out in His sight, and I answer to Him. And my friend, if God has entrusted you with authority, you should pray that God would make you wise, and that God would make you generous, and that God would make you to be truly loving and good and servant-hearted in the exercise of your authority. The last word, and then we'll come to the table. 
The reason these instructions are given to bondservants and masters is the same reason why the book of Colossians was written, that in all things, Jesus Christ may have the preeminence. He looks upon the very details of our lives, our work from day to day, and He calls us to bring it all under His Lordship. He is indeed reconciling to Himself all things, things in heaven and things on earth. What a glorious thing that the preeminent Christ would draw worship and joy to our work that seems often so menial and mundane. But of course, there is no such work when it is done in service to the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, so much of our lives are taken up with our various vocations and callings, so many tasks and assignments, so much work that we carry on from day to day. Thank you that here in this passage and even other passages we could have turned to, you've not left us without a word about how we're to view our work. We thank you that no one here needs to be a pastor or a missionary in order to serve you in worshipful ways in our work. We thank you that, Lord, as our master, as our teacher, as our Lord, you are pleased to oversee and supervise even the most simple things from sweeping a porch to changing a diaper to cleaning out our email accounts. Lord, you are pleased to receive such acts when done heartily as unto you as genuine acts of worship in service to you. So please help us as your people. Uh, in our workplaces uh, to carry out uh, these principles and these virtues that have been commended to us. May you motivate us by the realization, not only that your eyes are always on us, but that you are at all times ready to receive our work as an act of worship to you. May this truly help us in our vocation. So many of us find ourselves discouraged and in, in difficult situations in our work. Oh, please, Lord, help us to see what you're doing through our work. Now you're using it to sanctify us and how you're using it to bring glory and praise and worship to your name. Help us to encourage one another in these things, to promote a vision for vocation that is exciting and wonderful and handsome in your eyes. Father, we pray that you would help those of us here who have been entrusted with authority over others, many here that you have given stewardship to over much. Help them, give them wisdom, give them love. Father, those who are called into difficult situations under authority that is at times challenging and can feel oppressive, oh, we pray that you would sustain them, that you would even use this text to motivate them and to bring new energy and vigor to endure in the midst of very hard and difficult circumstances. In all things, Lord, help us to carry out our work and our days and our lives, recognizing that in all things Christ ought to receive the preeminence. Help us to give our lives in service to Him as living sacrifices being agents of your work of reconciliation of all things in Him. And now, Lord, bless us as we come to the table, as in this act of worship we remember what our Lord has done for us, not what we have done for you. Uh, but, Lord, what you have accomplished in your Son, the work that only He could complete, which He at all times did obediently and heartily for our salvation. 